0: I love scotch,
1: scotch, 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 scotch. Have another whiskey. If you'd like to speak to me in person, press one. If you'd like to order drugs, press hash. (laughs) (laughs) I had a gentleman in the crowd that was like, tell me how to drink Glenfiddich. And I was like, I will not do that. You drink Glenfiddich how you want to drink Glenfiddich. Wear a cowboy hat in Los Angeles and look at the amount of looks you get. It's unbelievable. This is the most flamboyant city on earth. You wear a cowboy hat, People we'll look at you like you were yeah. like an alien. The Beatles came on and they like, picked me up on his shoulder. George Harrison is as close to me as that yeah. wall now. I went, all right, George, all right. And he went, cough. <laughs> and that was the closest <laughs> I ever came to the Beatles. Can have a whiskey while well, we... Yeah, let's do yeah, it. Again. Yeah, yeah. Cheers. 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 Yep. Welcome back to United States of Dramerica. And I'm delighted to have a very, very, very Scottish... Guest on the podcast, somebody I've known for for many years. Welcome to the podcast, Estelle McCartney.
0: Thanks, Dan. Great to be
1: here. So you are you're lots of things. One of them is you are currently the chief customer officer for Arctic Shores, who are a clever uh, recruiter who use AI to make uh, the recruitment process more diverse, but. I'm a little bit more interested, no offence to Arctic Shores, in the years you have spent working on the intersection of business and politics, which is where we first met, where I was working in government, dealing with business, and you were on the other side of that. Um, And frankly, your general Scottishness and interesting things you have to say about the world. So because you're Scottish, unlike some of these where we don't drink the whiskey until halfway through, let's dive straight into whiskey, because obviously where you are, it's the evening, lockdown London, so you're probably desperate for a drink. It's lunchtime in California. I'm locked down. I'm also desperate for a drink. So what drink have you got at your end?
0: I have a very special um, glass of whiskey at my side. In fact, I've got the entire bottle by my side. Um, And it's a Glenmorangie La Santa. Um, But it's got a really, um, a story that's close to my heart. It actually brings together... Um, business, politics, good friends, um, and good whiskey. So, um, at the very start of my career, my first sort of proper job, I was working for an organisation called Britain and Europe, which was a cross party campaign group. But, but actually, the reality was it was a sort of like a front group, a ginger group for Blair's number 10 which was tasked with um, getting together the infrastructure um, and starting to make the case, should there be a referendum in the UK about British membership of the Euro? This is how far back I'm going, Dan.
1: Absolutely clarify this. The group was called Britain in Europe.
0: Correct, correct. (laughs) And and my job there was, I I was our business liaison and director. So my job was to go out and, and work with, and um, senior business leaders to encourage them to make the case for Britain's relationship with um, Europe, talk about why it's good for business. And so, you know. In, the, in my early mid-twenties, I found myself in the boardrooms of British Airways and Unilever uh, um, and BA systems talking to chief execs and, and CEOs, which was just sort of a bit ridiculous. And one of the people that I worked really closely with was a, a wonderful man called Geoffrey Madrell, who happened to be the chair of Glamour Energy at the time. And he and I got on really well, and he, he did loads of stuff um, for the campaign because he believed passionately in it. Um, and as you know um, that campaign didn't succeed there's a bigger story there and a long story there um, Jeffrey and I sort of lost touch fast forward 15 years or 12, 12, 15 years um, I meet a bloke we get together uh, we're still together. He's downstairs at the moment, also having a glass of this whiskey by himself. Um, and his name's David. I meet his lovely family, including his sister in law, Shan. Shan and I hit it off, become friends. You know, we get to know each other over a couple of years. Lo and behold, it turns out that Shan is Geoffrey Madrell's daughter. Wow. Sadly, Geoffrey passed away a couple of years ago. And this Christmas, one of the presents that I opened was a bottle of Glenmorangia Santa from Geoffrey's collection, which Sean had gifted to, to David and I as a little memento reminder of, of Jeffrey. So if you don't mind like that, I'd like to have a little toast to Geoffrey, if I may. Of course.
1: Let me just quickly pour mine. So I don't have Glenmorangie. Glen so... oh, Glenmorangie. Are you going to get... So look, who am I, a not Scottish person, to say to a Scottish person? I thought it was pronounced Glen Morangy. Morangy, um, but you're Scottish. You can pronounce it how you oh, want.
0: I can. I can say it again. <laughs>
1: well, no, it, it, it's one of the ones that uh, no one no one cares. But Scottish people have always said it's Glen Morangy. But it's sold in America as Glen Morangy. Okay. So I, and you're Scottish. You've got the rest of the accent, so you can call it what you like.
0: Okay.
1: I've actually got a Glen so I was trying to find a whisky from – because you went to the University in Edinburgh, I was trying to find one from around there, and I was thinking, you know what, I try very hard to pair the whiskies, but you're you're generically Scottish, so I'm going to drink a whisky from Scotland. So this is actually a Highland whisky, but I'm going to drink a Glendronic. Um, and interestingly, I'm drinking it partly because it was given to me because when I lost my job last year – so I, I lost my – I was made redundant in COVID, and um, the first gift I received from somebody – was a friend of mine brought round a bottle of Glendronic engraved with tough times don't last, tough people do. Okay. And given mm-hmm. that you and I have both changed jobs, careers, frankly, in the last year, I thought the uh, sort of the emotional support whiskey that I was given felt appropriate for this podcast. So I've got the Glendronic 12. Um, anyway. Cheers. cheers. To, to Jeffrey. Cheers. Um, to Jeffrey. So, you know, because you're a proper whiskey drinker, that's the thing about whiskey is that it's got stories and people behind them. So like every time I, I've had this three times now, but I've all, this is like my sort of my sympathy whiskey because I lost my job. And every time I drink it for the net and it will last me, you know, probably six months to a year. It will be my my mate supported me when I lost my job whiskey. And then you've got your I had a drink with a good friend whiskey. And I think that's the that's the thing about whiskey.
0: Absolutely. To me, I mean, I I don't drink whiskey regularly, possibly not quite as regularly as, as you, Dan, but for me, whiskey is all about sort of I don't know, special moments or, or magical moments. And I probably drink whiskey most, actually, when I'm on, on holiday or on a trip. I, I do tend to pack a hip flask with a nice single malt in it so that just at the end of a brilliant holiday day, and sit down somewhere beautiful with a great a great sunset or a great you know starry night and just sit back and have a deep breath and and a very special whiskey so I've got some really special memories of drinking a really beautiful whiskey in some incredible places um, in the world so for, for me that's what whiskey's is about
1: yeah I mean I think it's a same from I me mean, obviously I, I have to drink whiskey once a week minimum because of the podcast but and i'm trying not to drink too much more than that because being locked down you know one has to be slightly careful when one has a combination of a very long lockdown and a very large whiskey collection but um i've been so i've been making sort of zoom memories with people over the last year drinking whiskey with them but yeah like you i think there are there are people i talk to like somebody sent me something the other day actually another my old boss, our old joint friend, um, former consul general in Dusseldorf, Herr Malcolm Scott, nice. yeah. um, you know, it, like he texted me the other day because he'd read an article about somebody who said their favourite whiskey was kilomen which was a whiskey that Malcolm and I used to drink together. And then that was an excuse to reconnect about the fact we both like a whiskey. And it's such a, a weird thing. I don't think I'd ever see a, an advert on tea for TV for Heineken and text my mate going, hey look, James Bond drinks Heineken, we drunk Heineken together. It doesn't feel like you would.
0: You're absolutely right. And actually that sort of connection between friends and um, that link is really probably where I was first exposed to whisky um, as, a, as a young lass growing up in the uh, in Angus. Because my, my dad, who was a journalist, um, used to do quite a bit of after-dinner speaking and did a few of his friends, and, and very often they would be gifted a bottle of whiskey as a thank you for, for doing after the after-dinner speaking. And my dad got to the stage they had so many different bottles of whiskey in his drinks cabinet, they had this idea to come up with sort of a social occasion with his mates that he christened the Whiskey Olympics. And basically what, what they did was they, they took um, a, a big map of Scotland and I can remember this um, memories of this a big map of Scotland. Roll it out on the dining room table. My dad would invite his mates round, and they would all bring you know three or four bottles. And they would sit each bottle on the map where the distillery is in the right place. And they would divide Scotland up into six different regions. They might have sort of three whiskies from each, uh, three bottles from each region they would do round one so a, a tasting and they would vote for their favorite whiskey from that region then the 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 most popular ones would get put through to the semis and then the the, the next round would be the grand final and they would rather drunkenly after several hours of whiskey tasting tasting um you know announce who had won gold silver and bronze in the whiskey olympics and i'd say the olympics you know i could see why he christened it the whiskey olympics but you know this was an annual event not every four years um but but for me that that is part of my association with whiskey of the fun and friendship um but also the kind of point of view and perspectives because it is something that you know, people do have strong views about about some whiskies or about how to drink it or where to drink it or what's best, what's worse, um, and that was my that was my introduction to whisky as a as a young girl growing up. In Scotland. And,
1: and how to pronounce it is another area of contention as well. <laughs> and that's that's brilliant. So here's a question though: so when people brought the whisky round, yeah. Did he keep the bottles at the end of the evening?
0: I think they probably polished them off during the course of the... No, I think think in a truly Scottish way, they would all take them back home with them um, at the end of the night.
1: Right, we need to talk about the intersection of business and politics. So, actually, let's go back. It was a simpler time when you and I... I mean, looking back, it was definitely a simpler time. You know, I was working for the government. You were working... Um, for an agency on behalf of a big company and we used to interact and that was that was how it was how has if you look at the world now with what's happening in politics here in the US and also in Britain if you were doing that sort of job how what would you be saying to a business about how they interact with government today compared to it must have been 12 years ago that we were doing this together
0: Well, it's definitely different times from from then, Dan. And I guess um, part of the challenge, I think, for businesses that have been trying to engage with government in recent years has been that there's been a bit of a a gridlock caused, first of all, by Brexit and now by COVID. And I think what that has meant that a lot of other really important issues have perhaps not progressed quite as quickly um, as they as they might have and so I think that for businesses today it's a sort of a it's almost well it's a crisis it's a crisis mode um engagement but I think what's I think the big thing that's that's changed or the thing and it's possibly been more than 12 years that that it's been changing is the kind of the relative roles in society of of government and, and business and the the general relationship between those two different parts of society. So I think when when I started out um, sort of 15 years ago or so, you know, businesses' view was their role was to, you know, make money for their shareholders or or, or their owners and and what their job was to run their business in a way that maximised their ability to do that. And, of course, that's still massively important and a big part of running any business. But I think that the the expectations on business um, to do more and, and to act in a way that takes in broader considerations than just you know, their share price or their their profit has become immense. And, and I think that that's partly because of the additional, the increased transparency that there is in the world because of social media. But I also just think because it's because the people who are now Leading businesses and, and running businesses have just got a different view of why they do it and, and what they do it for. So I'm not saying that um, you know, business is supplanting the role of government or its businesses' role um, to run the country and, and nor should it be. And and there are plenty of you know businesses run by charlatans and crooks and, and bad examples. But I think if you if you look at what's happened in, in Covid, the extent to which some companies have really stepped up and and gone above and beyond and taken action and done things which have purely been about making their contribution to this big challenge that society is facing and not necessarily doing something purely because it drives
1: shareholder value. So I don't disagree with that at all. Can I cynically ask the question, how much of it is because... People in boardrooms have changed and genuinely want to do better in the world. And how much of it is an advisor sitting there saying, it's going to look great for us if we can come up with an idea that makes us money while also doing good?
0: Yeah. So I think that it's probably somewhere in the middle of those two points. I mean, I think certainly. 10, 12 years ago, it was probably more the, the latter. So it was someone advising a company who was pretty canny about reputation and, and PR um, that was pushing these issues and actually probably didn't have a seat around the board table. It was probably at a level, you know, a below the, the corporate ladder. But I think that
1: now... Sorry see, to interrupt. And would yeah. have that, frankly, have been... You, as in you've been hired by somebody and you go in and say, look, guys, try and look like you care more. No.
0: <laughs> it <laughs> no, my role was much more sophisticated than that. Uh, no, it, it there was definitely a part of, of my job which was to translate for businesses what government and politicians were thinking or what their motivations were, or what their trigger points were, and to be that interface between business and, and politics. Um, but I think that, you know, that that's now, and I suppose that that was possibly where, you know, when you had sort of, it was called CSR in those days, corporate social responsibility, and that was the early days of it. And, and I think, you know, it was a little bit more of a, what does this mean from a reputational perspective? And that role might have sat in a comms team or a reputation team. But I think over the last ten years, there's definitely been a, a shift, and this is now something that um, impacts um, can impact the bottom line. Um, it's something that business leaders know that if they want to attract and retain great talent, they have to you know show and, and take actions that show that they are. A responsible company or that they've got a, a perspective or a, or a point of view and of course I'm not saying that every business is doing this or every business is motivated by this but I think that it has definitely it's definitely moved on.
1: Obviously cancel culture didn't exist 10 years ago in the same way and if it did it was very specific you know you might see a small protest outside a company's um, lobby but you wouldn't have what we've got now. And you see, and I feel obviously social media is on the rise, but also so so is polarisation and division. So there is a lot now where people will do something. And it could be something very egregious, or it could be they place sponsorship with something like a TV news network or a football team that creates some issue. And all of a sudden, you know, there's a whole campaign against them. Around that sort of thing, you know, what, what is the advice you just sort of keep your head down do you be brave and pick a side what you know how do you navigate that world
0: so i think that if you're already in the eye of the storm then just keeping your head down isn't really an option and and you know no comment is not the way to the way to proceed i think the most important thing is around authenticity and being authentic um because if you're not authentic then sooner or later you will, you will get, you will get found out. Um, and I think that the, the challenge for companies is that they have got, they're much more exposed to people with different views and different perspectives who've now got a voice that they didn't have pre-social media. And so I think you as a company have got to know what your values are and what your your position is and what your perspective is. And yes, you listen, but you, you know, you have to be authentic and think about that and know what that is so that you've got a solid foundation from which to respond to, you know, a stone that gets thrown or a perspective that comes in from, from one point of view. So I think it goes back to, you know, companies needing to have more than just a story about their business strategy, but about their values and their position and what they're doing and how they're acting.
1: Wait. It's such a complicated world because you look at I mean, like some big examples here, like Nike, Nike, for example, have been seen to handled the whole social justice thing very well. You know, they supported Colin Kaepernick all the way through. They're very much all their adverts are very much now about diversity and supporting, you know, young girls and all this sort of stuff. And then on the other side, people are saying, yes, but they still are hiring people to work in their in their manufacturing sites in China and paying them you know, a pittance and treating them badly. And then you look at something again, like the NBA which has been seen to be doing a great job on diversity and social justice. But then they're accused of pandering to China, who, you know, where there's human rights abuses, because they want the money from them. So, you know, everyone who seems to be doing well on one side seems to also being partially cancelled on the other. So how do you navigate through that?
0: Well, as you said, Dan, the, the world is more complex and more challenging and, and, and more difficult. And I think that um you have to you know you, you you as a business have to have to have those that North Star those um values of that perspective. And then you I think that we now live in a world where you actually do have to take action and respond to specific challenges or criticisms um, you know that you face and it's not it's not easy and it makes the boardroom a much more frightening um, place to be but actually ultimately I think it's a good thing Hmm. the increased accountability the increased transparency and I also think that you know most people understand that the world is difficult and challenging and that mistakes happen and and um, that that businesses um, are not perfect um, but and, and we're not going to change them or, or make everything perfect in one you know in an easy step but but actually each of these moments or incidents creates another moment to kind of move you know move that forward or to increase that transparency or and also the, the the longer term impact of it I think has been that business now sees its role and its responsibility in a broader way than it did 15 years ago and that's not to say that you know they're all perfect and they get it right every time or they can change everything immediately in, in the same way that governments get it wrong or, or, or governments do contradictory things so you know you might say that they've got a you know, a human rights agenda on one side, but then have to engage with or, or do deals that that perhaps look like they're counter to that. So it's a complicated world, and it's about how do you navigate? How do you navigate that? And therefore, um, back to what I said is that you do need to think about what your values are, um, what what is authentic to you. Um, otherwise, you're going to get buffeted around.
1: So here's a question about government. So when I I don't think this is specifically related to when I left government, but I like to think that in the dozen years I worked for the government, it, it felt very obvious that people wanted to be associated with you. So companies wanted a relationship with government because they wanted very specific, tangible things like grants and government support and so on. But then also the association with government was seen as a good thing both in the UK, but also abroad, companies would work with us. Now, do you think? And this applies both in the UK and the US. Is it much more complicated? Like, is it almost being too close with government could be seen as being tainted now, and you're almost better not being involved? Is that is that right?
0: That's I, I, a really interesting question. I, I mean, I think um, I think that that. What you've raised might reflect the specific individuals um, that are heading up governments in, in those two respects in those two countries. Um, rather than you know rather than a broader all government is bad or, or you know I don't want to be seen' be seen anywhere near government and politicians. I think that the advice that I always gave um, to companies when you know when I was working in that world, was around the difference between engaging with government and being party political, mm-hmm. or engaging with opposition and being party political, um, and I think for you know for for business that is um, you know that that's probably uh, you know that's a massively important thing um, for business to kind of or a challenging thing to navigate that line between. Uh, I've got, you know, I'm engaging with business for this, engaging with government for this reason, and um, but I pro- possibly shouldn't, you know, be seen to be too party political. Um,
1: yeah, I think here it's, I think in America it's much more extreme. So, yeah. you know, a polit- so the usual sort of president visiting factory opening is sort of fine, but yeah. there's been some very specific examples here in the last few years where you know, president says something bad about a company, company share price drops immediately, but then actually sometimes goes back to where it was afterwards because the other side who and it depends on the demographics of the company's audience might actually make a might want to do business with that company specifically because they have fallen out with the, the president or the president's family. So I think in America it's it's much more people give money to one side or another, while in Britain it feels a little bit more softer
0: I think that's right and I think that that there's certainly um you know we certainly have our challenges with divisions in society but in our country and some of that is by politics but I don't think it's quite as, as acute as it is um in the state and also think the broader relationship between business and government because of the money and the funding thing um it's different in the UK. You know, there's not the same uh, need for for political parties to to raise vast, vast amounts of money. So you no. don't have that, like, you know, that that same acute thing. Yeah, you know, there there's been an interesting thing in, in recent election campaigns around um, sort of businesses or or business leaders rather than companies coming out to support one party or the other. I mean, certainly in in the run up to '97. Um, Labour were absolutely obsessed with demonstra- so were demonstrating that they had credibility amongst the business community, and therefore a big part of the Labour Party's election campaign and, and the run-up to that was about co- was about courting business, um, and then the election after that, th- there was a similar you know fascination with lo- really important to roll out business support for Labour, get that credibility on economic policy. But I think that era has kind of gone a bit. You know, Mm -hmm. there was a bit of that in the last election, but, you know, I don't think it has the same, it doesn't have the same impact, it doesn't have the same resonance. I think that, you know, that that personal endorsement of a particular party, possibly, again, because of the increased scrutiny and transparency and voices off and and, and potential to get yourself in a sticky situation has increased. I think there's kind of a bit of a winding back of of that in in this country.
1: Yeah. Now, look, since the beginning of the pandemic, you have been working for this new company called Arctic Shores. So just in case your new boss is listening, tell me about Arctic Shores. Well, let's start with the most obvious question, which is Why are they called Arctic Shores? Arctic Shores
0: burst onto the scene about five years ago with a really innovative disruptive product in HR tech and recruitment tech. Um, And it's based in um, two things. One, very, very serious science, cognitive science, um, and two, gamification, sort of playful gamification. And the founders, um, Robert and Safe, wanted to find a name that reflected those two different parts of, of what the company was about. So the seriousness of the science and, and the game, the playful game. And Robert, um, his mother is German and he's, he spent a lot of time in the Alps and loves things snowy, hence Arctic. And Safe's family are from Egypt and loves warmth and seaside and hence shores. So there you have Arctic shores.
1: Very good. So the whole thing is around using gamification as part of the recruitment process to get away from the old days of you look at a resume, you look at the picture, you look at the ethnicity, what university they went to, and you make your decisions based on what you feel most comfortable with hiring, and you get all the unconscious bias that comes with all of that.
0: Exactly. So, so basically the, the assessment, which is um, it's an online assessment, is grounded in psychology, in cognitive science, and in data science, and it's used particularly in early or originally in early years careers and graduate hiring. So, you know, PwC use it in loads of countries around the world for their their grad hiring. And what it does is it enables um, companies to see more in people to kind of go beyond just their CVs or the qualifications. And to get an insight using um, the, the, the science behind the tool to understand what a particular candidate's natural behaviour pre- preferences are, what their potential is. And the impact of that is that it t- reduces dramatically kind of bias in the interview Um, process whether that is you know bias of which university you went to or gender bias all these unconscious biases that exist and it enables um, candidates to really demonstrate their full potential but in a way that's much more relaxing and fun than sitting some scary test or going into an interview room um, or or doing some kind of aptitude or or skills test. And so that every time a candidate um, takes the assessment or when they they take the assessment, um, it kind of delivers up to about anything up to 12,000 different data points, which then those behaviours get matched To personality or to behaviour traits that indicate someone's natural preferences. So, you know, it might show your your appetite for for risk or what your executive function potential is. Um, And you know, as you can imagine, when this company was launched by Robert, say five years ago, it was a bit like you know, really, (laughs) what is this? Um, And over the last you know five years, they've done an incredible job in demonstrating its. Efficacy and and the sort of the, the impact that it's had, um, and yeah, I, I joined in September, um, having sort of proved the value of the product. They they managed to raise some investment um, about sort of sixteen months ago. COVID like uh, for everyone else just caused them to to put a little pause on things, and I joined uh, last September as the company's first um, chief customer officer so it's an incredibly exciting and scary and and, you know challenging time for anyone that's in a scale-up business um in the current environment
1: so when they hired you presumably you used their software as part of the hiring process
0: absolutely yeah absolutely
1: so they didn't know they were getting a scottish lady until they got one
0: they had no idea whatsoever they were mightily disappointed when I turned up, I it, not know. Um, no, actually, it's a company that I had known for a for a, a long time. I'd known one of the founders, Robert, actually through again through the interface between business and, and politics. That I got to know one of the founders, and I just watched from a distance as they set up this company and 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 saw them grow and just have a real impact. Um, and so it was a company that had my eye on for a while, and it was time for me to. To look for a new change in my career and they'd raise the money. So it was a happy, happy timing. Um, and, and it's not just what they do and, and the impact that the company has that really motivated me. I mean, I care passionately about diversity in, in the workplace, but I also find the whole sort of SaaS software as a service business model, which is relatively new, a kind of a fascinating, um, fascinating model and it's it's really changing the way that companies are having to think about how do they how do they grow how do they scale um and so to be kind of involved in in a company that's that's going for big growth um in an exciting sector that's having an impact um not just on society but on the individuals I mean I love the idea that um in lots of different corners of the world there are people you know, heading to their job or, or actually doing their job at home at the moment that have, that are doing a job that actually f- suits them, that fits, place to their strengths. Because um, let's face it, you know, when we leave school or university, we don't really have a clue what we want to do or, or we might have an idea, but it's not really grounded in anything. Um, and, and so the idea that Arctic Shores is not only helping companies to, you know, reduce the cost of recruitment or helping them have a more diverse workplace but there's all these people heading off to work in something that suits them much better than they than otherwise
1: is it just around the recruitment side or given the obsession nowadays with sort of software to work out whether you've got the right team does it work can you use it with an existing workforce to understand traits or not so that the
0: starting point was very is and the focus has really been about Um, recruitment predominantly and particularly early years recruitment and SIFT so when you've got a high volume of candidates and there is potential that there is potential for it to be used more looking at teams or looking at career development and but that's and we started to do some work in that space and but that's at a slightly earlier stage it's predominantly in the recruitment space
1: at the moment. Very good. And so, because it like I'm on my fourth, com, fourth almost completely different career. So I wonder whether if I had used tool like Arctic Shores right at the beginning, then I would have found a different career path.
0: I know it's kind of it's kind of scary, isn't it? And um, nothing like that existed when you and I were starting out in our uh, careers all those years ago. No, no. Um, but no, I think the candidate element of it is is incredibly important. I mean. Back to, I think we, we spoke earlier about, you know, companies needing to do certain things and behave in certain ways to retain and recruit the top talent, the candidate experience of applying for a job with a company um, and how that, you know, what what, that, what that's like for the candidate is another reason that that companies choose to, to work with us. Because, I mean, obviously this tool is part of the recruitment process. It doesn't replace interviews or assessment centres um, but but candidates, I mean they, they, they love it. it's something really different. And they also get sent as soon as you finish um, taking taking the assessment, the candidate gets sent um, sort of a, a mini report giving them some information. So even if they don't if they're not successful in that application, they've got something out of it and they they learn something about about themselves.
1: It's interesting because as somebody who has applied for quite a lot of jobs in America where a lot of this stuff is all automated, over the last few years. You know, I've probably applied for 50 jobs. Um, and it's interesting because you learn a lot about a company by the by this interface. So there was one company, you know, I, actually, interestingly, of the 50 or so jobs I applied for, I never got an interview for any of them, um, which maybe says something about me having written a resume in the 1990s. I think nowadays, it's all a bit different. And also, a lot of them use this automated software. But I really appreciated getting a no quickly from two or three companies who wrote very nice, albeit probably partially auto-generated, no thank you. But I still got those. While other companies, you just never hear back from. And you know, you learn something about that company. Obviously, if you don't get the job, you never work there, but you, it says something about a company about how they care about that interaction because every potential hire could be a potential hire later or a client or a stakeholder at some point. So it's underrated how you tell people no.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it's um, it's another bit of that overall brand and reputation um, factor, you know, the experience of, you know, if you have terrible experience applying for a job, you know it's obviously going to reduce your view of that of that company. And, and companies increasingly they get that. But I think you know, as hiring and recruitment is an incredibly time-intensive, expensive, you know, resource-heavy activity, and so not just doing it well, but getting it right and getting the right candidate. You know it's it's no it's not an easy task and I think where Arctic shores and is really kind of growing and where the benefit is is both on that candidate experience but also where you've got huge volume of can you know PWC hundreds of thousands of applications for their graduate program how do they run that and conduct that in a way um, that gets them the best the most appropriate candidates with the right potential? for the roles that they're looking to fill, but does it in such a way that those that, you know, that aren't successful still think highly of of that business?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And actually, I mean, obviously, recruitment's always been important, but it feels like at the moment maybe it's even more important than usual because it is entirely plausible that you would hire somebody and not meet them in real life for a year um, and not know what they're doing in between the Zoom calls and all that stuff.
0: Absolutely. And, and, you know, that's... um, Certainly a, a reason i don't I don't want us to you know, Covid is obviously a terrible, a terrible thing, but it has causing companies to think about other ways of of operating and the whole how do we work and run and manage our business remotely um is certainly an, another reason why companies are getting in touch with us and even you know once we get through COVID I think we all know that the workplace has changed and that with the way that we work changed and therefore you know being able to do things with a better outcome but also remotely is going to you know it's gonna matter it's gonna count so um it's yeah it, it's another it's another part of why it's an exciting time you know yeah. to, to be at Arctic shows.
1: Brilliant. So I know this question, which is our last question, is not yet in the Arctic Shores questionnaires, but it probably should be because you learn a lot about people from this question. If you could drink any whiskey with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be, what would it be, and where would it be?
0: So, Dan, because I'm a fan of your podcast and I have listened to quite a few episodes, I I didn't know you were going to put this question my way. So I, I have had to think about it, and... I mean, for me, as I said, sort of whiskey is all about magical, um, magical moments and storytelling and and spending time with interesting people. So, I I'm gonna drink this whiskey um, in a place that I really want to visit, Bhutan, mm. because this to me, Bhutan. I mean, I've, I've been lucky enough to drink whiskey in, in Chile and in. Kyrgyzstan and in Georgia and those to me are real kind of whiskey drinking country think like Bhutan so I'm going to be in Bhutan drinking this whiskey and the whiskey that I'm going to be drinking is why would I not try to sample the world's most expensive whiskey that, that was sold at Sotheby's in February this year so it's going to be a Macallan 1926 because if you're giving me the chance to drink any whiskey why would it not be that one? And then the final bit of it, which is probably the most important thing, is who you're drinking it with. And I suppose my initial reaction in COVID times was, "Oh God, you know, wh- my friends and family." But that's a bit of a that's a bit of a dull answer. So I thought, right, which which figure from history? And um, and for me, because it's about travel and adventure, I've decided to share this whiskey or to drink this whiskey with. Um, fascinating woman called Gertrude Bell, who is one of many incredible women from sort of the the late 19th, early 20th century, who just did cool, awesome, incredible things that nobody's really heard of. And she was um, an archaeologist, she was a linguist, um, she was first woman to get a, a first in history at Oxford. In fact, she didn't actually get awarded the degree until she, after she left because Oxford didn't give degrees to women then. And the other reason I chose her was for you, Dan, because she also want, went on to great heights in the um, diplomatic service, and she was a real influencer, particularly in um, in Iraq and some of the stuff that happened there. And. The other thing that's incredible about she was an amazing mountaineer, and she was in an accident, and she spent forty hours dangling on a rope. So I just think Gertrude is going to have some awesome stories to tell me over this very lovely glass of expensive whiskey as we sit in Bhutan looking at some spectacular scenery.
1: A brilliant answer. So we've—you're not the first guest to realise that if you can drink any whisky, why wouldn't you pick the world's most expensive? So that's good. Uh, but you're definitely the first to suggest Bhutan, and no offence to Gertrude Bell, but I think many of our guests would not have mentioned her, and probably some haven't heard of her, which is why it's so great that you have. So, oh, brilliant answer. Estelle McCartney, old friend, not that old, obviously. Uh, we've known each other for years. We've drunk... I see, I'm see. i trying to think if we must have drunk whisky together. We,
0: the we have... We have.
1: Yeah. But I feel like I didn't remember the whiskey or the moment enough because in those days, when I, I remember often seeing you in some very fancy restaurants paid for by one of your clients and very, very fancy restaurants. Particularly, it was a Chinese restaurant we went to. It's we like a private area downstairs somewhere in London. And um, so we've eaten in some of the nicest restaurants I've ever been to together. Well, we were working hard. So it was. Oh, no, no. It's entirely all justified. But. I think because we were just doing so much of that at that time, you don't sort of sit back and think about the way that I think whenever we next see each other again and have a whiskey together, I feel like because of all that's happened with, with COVID, we'll sort of treasure it and remember it in a different way because that's the new world we all live in now.
0: We will definitely be having a lovely whiskey somewhere gorgeous sometime I hope in the not too distant future Dan.
1: Brilliant. Thank you very much indeed.
0: Thanks
1: for having me. Mm, I love scotch. scotch, scotch, scotch. And don't forget to not just follow us on Twitter and Instagram at US of Dramerica, but also ask us questions and comment and say nice things. And please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And if the mood takes you, you can leave us a review as uh, feedback is always welcome and drink whiskey staunchivar